Okay, welcome back everyone to Labelling the Disabling, the podcast where we want to point out what disables people. Today's guest is Tim Rushby-Smith and I've read a little bit about his background and about his um, life, um, but what he really talks about in a lot of what I've read is exactly what we do here on the podcast, which is labelling the disabling. Uh, what is disabling people with disability? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I'm here too. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> g'day everybody. Uh, and uh, yeah, looking forward to having a chat to Tim today. G'day Tim. Good, g'day. There you go. I'm trying to get used to the Australian uh, lingo. <laughs> lingo, okay. Exactly. Um, so yeah, thanks Ed. Ed my um, co-host is again with me, which is great. We're together again doing a podcast. And when I spoke a little bit, Tim, about labelling the disabling and how some of what I'd read that you've written does that, mm -hmm. uh, we will get into that. But what I wanted to start with today was when I read your bio, it said you became a writer or an author, something like that, in 2005. Yeah, well, it was, it was 2008 that I was first published but I actually I had a spinal cord injury in 2005 um, so I'm a convert to paraplegia is how I describe myself okay. <laughs> um, so and I was 36 when I had my accident so prior to that I had various jobs uh, I was a, a telephone engineer I always loved uh, heights and climbing so I, I was a very keen uh, rock climber when I was younger and then I got into climbing masts and, and aerials, uh, broadcast masks and telegraph poles. And then from there, um, I then set up a garden design business with my wife and then I trained as a tree surgeon mm -hmm. to bring additional skills to that. And that's how I had my accident. I fell out of a tree and that was in 2005. Um, when you were working, was it? When I was working, mm. yeah. So wow. that was over in the UK. I'm from London originally. Mm. So it was while I was uh, still living in London. Um, so obviously it was time for a, a, another career change. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got into, I guess, writing about my experience. I was encouraged to write a book about my experience. Uh, and for me then, it was about uh, writing a book about trying to get back to a normal, in inverted commas, life. Um, because there were lots of great books about people going on to to uh, incredible achievements, whether it was you know, in the sporting arena or, or, mm. or, or other adventures. Um, whereas I was actually, my wife was pregnant when I had my accident and I was trying to get back to um, my life. I'm sure she was not impressed. Uh, she wasn't impressed. No. Um, she felt there's one occasion when the focus should have been on her and mm. there I was upstaging her again. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not on purpose, obviously. Not on purpose, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. no. So, the, so for you, that that's interesting. So I think you're right, actually. There's a lot of um, stories, isn't there, about people um, yeah, going on to achieve achieve incredible things but your goal was was normality really was was uh being becoming you know being able to be a dad or, or things of that nature yeah, yeah. it was a, i mean being a dad was a very big part of it, it mm. was, um i did my re my sort of rehabilitation through stoke mandeville spinal unit and mm -hmm. i was from injury to discharge was about three months which is relatively quick for spinal cord injury um, but that was because I was determined to, to get mm. out of the spiny unit before my daughter was born. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, it was my first child. And and so I think while I was going through that process of rehabilitation, I parked a certain amount of stuff because I felt like the clock was running. And in some ways, uh, um, 
uh, sort of emotionally, there were, I had to sort of process a lot of stuff and realize what things were going to be useful to me and what weren't. Um, but also, I was, I was, I had to challenge my senses to what parenthood looked mm. like as well, mm. because so much of the sort of preconceived images of, of parenthood tend to be around sort of very physical things, especially as a father, you know, mm. there's so much sort of carrying your children on your shoulders and, mm. you know, footy in the park and all that kind of thing. So, mm. so in a way, I actually had to sort of strip that back and say, well, what's, what's really important mm. as a father? You know, what, what is the role, the most important thing that a father mm. uh, offers? And that actually it's about feeling loved and nurtured mm. and supported. And so, and so a lot of my early writing was actually around that. I wrote a book about my experience. Mm. Um, and then when that was published in 2008, I then started as a columnist for The Times in London, writing about life as a wheelchair dad. So, so okay. it was very much about parenting, um, really, and getting people to think about um, the challenges that I faced, but also to, again, to get people to think about what is really important and that so much of what we see as being important is very physical and very mm. sort of outward. Mm. Um, but that often true. we, we yeah. misconstrue what's really important. Mm. So w when, I, when you talk about that, what, what sort of things can you explain? So p people might think they know what challenges a dad um, who uses a wheelchair might face, yeah. um, but what, would, what, what did you write about? What sort of challenges did you think about? Now, I don't know if you know, but I'm legally blind and I'm a parent as well, and there are challenges that I have found in parenting that other people may never have thought about. So yeah. um, w when you were writing that, what, what sort of challenges did you write about? What were challenges for you? Um, there are everything from the the trivial frustrations of I, at least I was spared the excruciating pain of standing on Lego because I'm in a wheelchair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's however, yeah, that's a good one. However, when you wheel over Lego in in mm. tires, uh, if you have uh, air pressured tires, then the Lego has a tendency to fire out at, at high velocity sideways mm. from under the tires, um, mm. and just generally getting. Uh, my daughter to to try and understand that she couldn't just leave things lying everywhere because mm -hmm. actually that mm -hmm. restricted my ability to move around, mm -hmm. um, and that, and those sort of rather mundane, trivial things yep. up to actually much more profound issues like the anxiety around uh, parenting a toddler in a busy city. Mm. So living mm -hmm. in London, when she was first mobile, having to find solutions. I mean, actually, even just being able to pick her up when she was little, um, mm. it, I, I discovered um, the, the value of a, a decent pair of quality dungarees on a, on a mm. toddler because I could actually pick her up with like putting a handle on the back of her yeah. yeah. and I could actually yeah. lift her up. Um, and so, and then when she was walking and, and running around, I had a little backpack with a little lead attached to it. Yep. So that, because it was just the idea if she darted between two parked cars, there was no way mm. that I could actually yep. mm. sort of grab her. And so it's those sort of very, that idea that you have to constantly, I mean, every parent has to constantly engage a part of their brain on mm. the parenting uh, side of keeping your child safe, knowing where they are and all the rest of it. But there was a sort of extra level because mm. I had to always be thinking ahead mm -hmm. two or three moves instead of being able to react impulsively and, and just mm. sort of intervene. Mm. So, yeah. mm. so they're, they're like the, um, I guess, the physical or the safety barriers that, you know, we talk about in terms of, dis you know, disability. Yeah. Um, what do you think 
may have also disabled you in terms. So we, we're flipping the word now and we're not saying with disability, we're saying disabling. So mm. was there something about that that you felt was disabling you in terms of your parenting? Uh, was there something about that that was disabling me? Um, there was certainly the built environment often disabled yep. me as a parent. Yep. Um, that was, that, that. I mean, there are very logistical aspects around that, uh, accessing public transport, um, just even um, negotiating where dropped curbs are mm-hmm. uh, so that I could actually cross the road. So there were, there were physical impediments, which... Uh, especially in a city, um, I you know I feel are are obviously where the physical built environment is not up to standard to yep. where it needs to be to actually be able to everyone to to uh, access it. And this yes. is a, a, a really a major bone of contention for me because everyone can use a ramp, everyone can mm. use a dropped curb. Mm. It doesn't exclude anyone, and yes. so those kind of things I, I feel are really about um, you know a bit of a shift in thinking, which. Mm. Thankfully, I, I think generally that notion of, of uh, a sort of social model of disability where actually if, if your building can't isn't accessible to everyone, there's a problem with your building, not a problem with the person who can't get into it. Absolutely. Uh, so definitely I felt there were those physical impediments. But the other side which I found quite difficult uh, at times was more the way that I was became the sort of living embodiment of whatever people's preconditioned ideas were about disability mm. or preconceived notions, should I say. Yep. And especially being in a wheelchair where you are the sort of uh, a, a living disabled symbol because you're the same as that one that's on the toilet and the car parking space. Yes. Mm. And then whatever preconceived notions people have, they just project them onto you. They don't, you know, wait or inquire or find out exactly what your needs or abilities are or or how they might be able to help or not hinder you. Mm. You just become whatever baggage they want to hang on you. And as a Mm. parent, that can be quite difficult because then your child is also then drawn into that as well. Yes. And they can then feel like they are being uh, singled out or that they're not, you know, that they're being treated differently, Um, you know. And there's, uh, you know, as a child, you don't want to see your your parent being patronised. No, (laughs) that's true. You know, you should be patronising mm. children, not parents. <laughs> <laughs> so it is that, that you, you did talk about that. So there's the, the social model and then we talk about the physical and built environment. But one of the biggest things that are disabling for people with disability is people's attitudes. So that um, perception that people have um, of disabled people or people with disability, however you want to um, call call us. Yeah. Um and so that, that social attitude is really hard to break down or really hard to explain or express uh, what's going on or how to deal with that. So, um, mm. and, and you did talk about in one of the bios that I, I read, um, you talked about being on the beach yeah. um, and somebody coming up to you and saying something to you and um, how that, you know, how that made you feel, how that was interpreted and and or could have been interpreted i guess you've put in there you've you've spoken a little bit about that can you talk us through that that yeah, situation I live, um i live now on the south coast of new south wales uh moved over here from london in 2013 and what brought you here why, why australia uh, okay so my wife penny is actually from sydney originally. okay okay all right uh, we met in london um um and 
I'd been over here about eight or nine times before we moved. Okay. So okay. I, I mm. sort of knew what I was getting myself yeah, into. Yeah, in four, yeah. <laughs> um, and we moved to Jarangong, which is, as a wheelchair user, is a really bad move. It's very, <laughs> yeah. very hilly. Um, but there, um, there, is, there are a couple of beaches, and there's one beach in particular that I, that I can get onto relatively easily because the sand's quite compact. Uh, and I have worked out various methods of making my wheelchair a bit more uh, beach accessible. Um, and I was it was actually Christmas, I think it was a couple of years ago now, and I was on the beach with my family and friends, um, and uh, there was a guy walking past, and everything just felt, I just felt very sort of, I was enjoying the moment of, of sharing this experience with my family and friends and just, feeling normal for want of a better description um and as this guy went past i think he said something like oh you're a legend mate Just, you're a legend mate. you're a legend yeah yeah and i think he said it pointing at me uh but also in a very sort of indicating to his son that i was a you know that i was a hero because i managed to get out on the beach in a wheelchair um, now, normally I would take all the plaudits that come with it, and mm. or not. Mm. Um, but I, at the time, I found it really jarring because mm. I, he wasn't saying it to anyone else. He was saying it to me. I was there with my family uh, and friends and I was just enjoying the moment. And then suddenly I was taken out of that moment because mm. I was being singled out as... Mm. This is a complete stranger, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And, mm. and the... Without being oversensitive, the sort of the, the tacit implication in there is you shouldn't be here. Mm. And well done for being here because actually yeah. you shouldn't really be here. And I don't mean mm. that as in you're not you're not allowed to be, but mm. that actually to be able to get yourself into that position mm. uh, you know, makes you heroic somehow. Mm. Um, mm. and you know, that is yeah, I find that kind of attitude quite frustrating yep. at times, mm. to yeah. say the least. Okay. Have you heard? I heard um, Graham Innes once say, you know, the, I don't know if it's his saying, but uh, the soft bigotry of low expectations. And yeah. I sort of think that sort of fits the bill of of that experience. You know, mm. it, it is a, a bigotry, uh, a soft bigotry, though. I mean, he's genuinely he's saying, you know, you're a legend. It's a sort of a nice yeah. thing to say on one on one in one sense, but. Um, it's, yeah. a, it's a shame that he's not saying it as a result of knowing the built environment and how heroic it is yeah. you have to be if you are um, if you do have disability to access the world because it's not accessible as we just said it's yeah. completely Boy. inaccessible yeah. he wasn't saying it in terms of look at all the crap around us and look at how mm. unaccessible this world is and look at how none of these beaches have got ramps anyway for mm. anybody yeah. um, he was sort of saying you're a legend because you've you know, you've managed to get yourself on the onto the beach, it's um, also, but not in. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also because I wasn't, I wasn't inviting observation and comment. Mm, that's I, right. I, I just wanted to, to live your life. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I know it's also partly if you grow up in a city, you get used to the the joyous anonymity that mostly people ignore you, and mm. when you move mm. to a small town. 
you know, I people always come up behind me in the in the supermarket and say, "Oh, you must be Tim." And and I a I can't turn around because the aisle's a bit narrow, and b I don't know who it is. And I just yeah. think, well, you know who I am because I'm fairly obvious, mm. uh, and you now have me at a disadvantage. Mm. <laughs> and that's definitely a difference from moving from a city. But I think mm. the, the experience on the beach is a. There's another example. Uh, where I was on, I think it was on the same beach. And, and when I talked about having worked out different ways of accessing the beach, I yep. have a, a front wheel that I can attach to the front of my wheelchair. There are a few on the market, but this is slightly different. I kind of built it myself and it has handlebars and a brake and and a sort of spring on the front forks. It's just got a 20 inch wheel, like a BMX style wheel on it. But that makes me a, a three wheel vehicle. And because it has a brake as well, if I'm going downhill, I can steer with the handlebars and use the brake. Um, but it, it means that I, the casters on a wheelchair are always the thing that, that, that uh, are your downfall once mm. you get onto rough ground or uneven ground. Mm-hmm. And so this is something I built myself. And on many occasions, people have come up and talked to me about that piece of equipment. Mm. And they are like, oh, I've never seen anything like that. Oh, that's really good. Cool. Oh, did you make it yourself? Yeah, you know. And then mm. the conversation is, oh, you know, mm. I have a my dad's in a wheelchair, or I have an mm. auntie who's in a, a chair, and that would be really good. And mm. and mm. actually, it's not. Then it's not about me, and it's not about whatever their preconceptions are projected mm. onto me. It's about a very practical, logistical way of solving a problem. Mm. Yes. Mm. And that's a difference, you know, and, and without being oversensitive, if someone comes up to me with their son and goes, oh, yeah, you know, I'm really impressed that you got on the beach, you know, because it's mm. difficult with the sand and, oh, what have you got? You've got a front wheel mm. there. And, yeah. yeah, that's different, you know, isn't and, it? And, and, You're happy and, to chat. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And then at the end, he then says, oh, well done yeah. for that or yeah. whatever. That's a very different thing. Yes, yeah. it is. Because isn't then it? actually, first of all, the, he's humanized me by having mm. a conversation with me. Yeah. I Secondly, yeah. he's made has a genuine interest in the challenges that I face and what I've done to solve those challenges. Yeah. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of anxiety around disability, uh, around people uh, worried about saying the wrong thing. Yep. And because people are worried about saying the wrong thing, I think as people, whenever we're worried about saying the wrong thing, it's usually what we end up doing because mm. you start to become self-conscious about what you're saying and you sort of get two or three steps ahead of the conversation and that means you're already making preconceived judgments on how that's going to go. Yes. And I think that's something that often So we're all kind of stumbling around. Yeah. The the topic is that, is well, that it feels so. like. And I think there's a big yeah. internal yeah. dialogue that goes on that, mm. that people don't realise they're even having. Yeah. And, and by yeah. the time they it's get to, it, it comes out, it will mm. be someone's on the bus on their way to work and they go, mm. oh, yeah, well done you. <laughs> yeah, and it's like yes. they've had this whole conversation. Oh, that person's in a wheelchair. I wonder what it's like for them getting out of bed in the mm. morning, and how do they get? You know, and then they've and they've actually got a job, and that's really good. They're getting out into the community, and then but they've got to get to work every day, and so what they're doing, they're public transport, which isn't well suited to people in wheelchairs, and so they've negotiated all of that. That might be the thought process they mm. go through. Mm. Might not be. Might not. Yeah. But mm. if that is the thought process they go through. And then what they end what with comes is, out. well done you. It's <laughs> yes. like, well done That's, for getting out of bed this morning. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. A bit, yes. It is very patronising. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. 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 Uh, and especially if you know, and you're an inspiration. That's the other one, which is obviously. Oh, yeah, that's that's mm. a hard one to mm. take. Yeah, yeah, that's the kicker that comes yeah. with it. Well, you've, yeah. talk, you've talked about um, yeah, talking to me, not 
at me. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think that is a general principle that one needs to apply uh, with all humans, be they yeah. um, with or without disability, old, young, uh, you know, male, female. I think, um, you know, that that is what we're trying to get across here as well, that people, uh, I think your example of the casters on the chair is a good one because, you know, it's the same, as you say, it could be the same thing. He might walk away saying you're a legend or something, but, um, yeah. you know, it's actually about the achievement around, you know, developing your chair in that way, the, the ingenuity that's gone into that um, to adapt. Uh, a bit like the parenting examples, I think, yeah. you know, all, all parents, you know, their focus is safety you know, mm. for, for the young one, particularly at that time when they I was picturing your daughter as a toddler at that age where she's just got her mobility and got no clue about safety and you're like, oh, my goodness. What do we and, do? And yeah. you're heading out into into the downtown London. Uh, mm. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, it, it does require forethought yeah. and planning, you know, yeah. I think. And yeah. I was, funnily mm. enough, I was talking with her about this very subject mm. uh, night before last. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, I, I became uh, a, a Tuesday mum is is what I became. So when <laughs> okay. what's a Tuesday oh, mum? Yeah. So Tuesday mum. Because I'd only like to be a mum on Tuesdays as yeah, well. No, that'd that'd work. Be, yeah, that'd work really yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. So on Tuesdays there was a there was a, a drop in playgroup in London um, where I used to take her mm-hmm. because it was a, an old church hall. And it was a confined or relatively constrained space she had the freedom to run around and and what have you and all I had to do was get her in and out of the building without her you know disappearing under a bus Mm -hmm. um and then we she quickly got I got to know some of the other mums there and she the kids all quickly got to an age where they sort of needed a bit more stimulation and needed something else to do and so we started going out on Tuesdays as a group Mm-hmm. So uh, there were three mums who all had sons, fun enough, and then me with Rosalie, my daughter. Um, and for me, that was a massively empowering thing because I, suddenly I could go and do these much more ambitious outings with the autonomy of me on my own and my daughter, but actually also having the added um, sort of assistance of being with other people who knew us and, and mm. who sort of knew to keep half an eye on on Rosalie if, if uh, if we were out and on one occasion we were in the Museum of Childhood which is in East London and I remember it clearly we were at the top of a flight of stairs and she turned around and she looked at me and she looked me square in the eyes and she started to smile and then she started to walk down the stairs mm. because she'd worked out that you I could. couldn't follow her. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just that look of defiance mm. which uh, and one of the other mums sort of spotted what was going on yeah. and went the other way around and oh, yeah. was at the bottom of the stairs. So that was yeah. that was helpful. But it was just interesting noticing that process of understanding that uh, a toddler or a, or a young child goes through where mm. they start to put things together but they mm. don't necessarily get the full picture as to what mm. the consequences might be. Mm. You know, and that's the thing of, oh, I can run away from mum or dad and mm. then if you're somewhere busy and there's traffic that's they yeah. don't think through what the the full implications yeah. that might be yeah yeah that's so, a, yeah that's that's a that's a really great story actually because it it highlights so many things mm. um and i think what it does is it encapsulates parenting you know yeah. she's worked it out yeah um you know what the dangers are and she's and i guess they continue to do that throughout their life don't they just that you had the added 
um, yeah. barrier of not being able to grab up. Yeah, well, they solve one piece of the of a very big jigsaw puzzle, but they don't necessarily understand where that fits into everything else around. Mm. And I think that's part of that learning process for, yeah. for parents and children, I think, yeah. together. So, 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 Tim, can I ask you, obviously with the, the injury you had in 2005, mm-hmm. so you're an arborist, you're a climber, yeah. you're a... Um, but this um, this change, as well as becoming a dad and everything, but you really did had had you any sort of ambitions around writing or things of that nature, or was it you know um, spurred on through your um, changed um, you know, life I, experience? I didn't have ambitions as a writer prior no. to my injury. Um, mm. I did have a mother who's always worked in publishing, so okay. I've always been around mm-hmm. books. Um, I've always loved books and uh, and. Mm. Um, and it, I've always loved telling stories, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it was partly came out of the fact that my half of my family, I, my wife's family were all over in Australia, mm. and I was in hospital, uh, and I was, try, I was writing regular emails to sort of update them on what was going on, and, and writing glasses half empty emails wasn't that helpful because mm-hmm. there was nothing they could really do with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... The reality is going through spinal rehab, you know, you uh, people sometimes will say you park your dignity at the door when you go into uh-huh. a spinal unit. And it sort of feels a bit like that. I don't think that is true. I think, you know, staff in spinal units uh, go to great lengths to make sure that you feel, you know, that you, you retain as much of your dignity as you can. But what you go through is you go through a process of learning how to care for yourself again. Mm. Bearing in mind that all of those things are skills that most of us tend to develop when we are children, mm. generally at an age that you don't remember as an adult. So your brain is telling you, oh, no, you know how to do this. You've got this. You know how to get in and out of bed. You know how to use the bathroom, all, all mm. of those things. Mm. And so that's quite psychologically, that's quite a process. Um, but there's a lot of humor in there as well. I mean, if you mm. can't find that stuff funny, then mm. then I think you tend mm. to really struggle. So you want, I guess you, that would take some mm. time, though, from mm. from to find it funny is what I mean. Like, it, yeah. I don't know if I could mm. um, go yeah, straight into them. <laughs> you were, you were, it sounds like you were noticing the impact your, you know, you said the glass half empty emails and things. Um, well, I, uh, I sort of felt like that wasn't the full story. There, yeah. were, there were occasions when I was laughing. Even, you know, with other patients and and with members of staff. And there's Mm. definitely a sort of gallows humour in there. Um, Mm. But there's also, I think, one of the things I've always been very passionate about and I've always been involved with uh, is uh, peer-to-peer support. So Mm. mentoring programmes or um, skills, developing Mm. uh, skills. I was very lucky. There was an organisation called the Backup Trust where... Uh, in the UK, and they send uh, people with spinal cord injury, they train them as volunteer wheelchair skills trainers, and they go into spinal units around the UK and actually teach wheelchair skills. And there's a big difference when you're being taught by someone uh, who's in a chair themselves. Mm. Uh, And it's not just about the skills they teach you. You're actually looking at them when they turn up in the car park and they park Mm. their car and then they come into the unit. Mm. And they're sort of modelling the idea that you have a life after your injury, whereas I think for a lot of people, it feels like all of your notions as to what the future is going to look like have been wiped out in an instant mm. and mm. you have to sort of start to rebuild all of right. that. So mm. do you diverge from, because I'd imagine when you initially have your injury, mm-hmm. you're sort of, you know, you've got all those preconceived ideas of, you know, survival after 
you know, severe, you know, or, you know, paraplegia. Yeah. And then you start to, you know, you start to diverge off into, well, actually, now I'm meeting a lot of people who are getting on with things and they're, you know, and, and you've, you know, you've got to, haven't you, to, 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 to move forward. Um, you've, you've just got to re, rework those preconceived yeah, notions. Yeah, you have to, I think you, you have to know. address them. You have yeah. to, I think you have to face your preconceived ideas. And I think mm. one of the things that can be challenging in there is people's preconceived notions of disability. Mm. Um, that actually uh, you, you have to address those things. And, mm. and to be honest, some people never really managed mm. to do that. And you know it, they you, struggle. You're talking about people who have people injuries, who acquire yeah. a disability, mm. yeah. whether it's yeah. an injury or a degenerative condition, yeah. or you know, for whatever, in mm. whatever way, people who acquire a disability and then have to get a sense as to what has changed, but also mm. what what that means to them, mm. and then on top of that, what that means to other people. Mm. Do you think personality has a bearing on that, Tim, or what do you? What do you? I think it, I think it can do. I mean, it's about, to use a very narrow um, area, um, looking at it from a spinal perspective. Mm. Uh, I, I noticed that, and I felt like there was probably a difference between people who had sustained a spinal cord injury, doing something that they knew on some level was carried an element of risk. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, yep, so that idea of guilt mm, or... Um, well, the idea that you have in some way, you are in some way responsible yes, for what happened, yeah. that you knew on some level. I knew being a tree surgeon that there, were, there was an element of risk. I was trained in what I did and I was using safety equipment and, um, and no one ever really fully identified what went wrong, but something did and in a way it wasn't... I got to a certain point where it wasn't that helpful to try and interrogate that because mm. there was only one reality and I couldn't go back and, mm. you know, redo things. And actually, the more I thought about that stuff, the more emotionally difficult that was. So I sort of just had to move forward, I mm. guess. Mm. Um, but then on the other hand, um, the the other school of thought is that then actually people who are injured doing something that carries an element of risk might be people who are the kind of people who are inclined to take a risk, which means that they yeah. might be slightly differently mm. wired in terms mm. of how they cope with mm, absolutely. their that's injuries. Really, that's but I really, think what yeah. we do share with, with everyone with a disability is I think uh, uh, sort of pretty much across the board, people who have a disability tend to be you know, pretty good problem solvers, mm. uh, I think, in one way or another, even mm. if it's not necessarily recognised in the conventional sense. But we all have to adapt and we all have to adjust because actually, mm. you know, we, we negotiate challenges every day mm. which are not necessarily uh, always physical, you mm. know, and they might even be self-imposed as well to some yeah. extent. But but I think we all have to develop ways and, and you know, Absolutely, yeah, different solutions and coping strategies. I think it's such a rich area for 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 research, isn't it? And study, yeah, it is. You know, is, is that that um, oh. how people cope? And yeah, but I was, I, if you don't mind, I was going to ask you as well because you worked with um, Darren Longbottom. You wrote yep. wrote a book. Um, Beyond the Break, yep. which sounds amazing, and I haven't read it. <laughs> but, okay, um, about Darren's uh, accident, and again, he was involved in a high-risk activity, something he knew very well. Yeah. Uh, but can you tell us what about a bit about that and what it was like working with, with Darren as well? Um, yeah, so Darren um, 
he had a spinal cord injury. He's actually quadriplegic. He broke his neck in a surfing accident in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he'd been a surfer his whole life. His his younger brother, Dylan, is is quite well known as a big rock, big wave specialist. So he goes around the world when there are the sort of super massive swells and wow. has yeah. to get towed in on, on um, jet skis, jet skis and, and so yeah. on. It's incredible. And, and There's no fa- way in hell you'd catch me <laughs> out there. But. Yeah. And his, his father was also a bit of a surf pioneer. Um, and... So this was something he'd done his whole life uh, and he had an accident. It was a freak accident. He wasn't doing anything particularly out of the ordinary or particularly uh, the the conditions weren't very challenging. Um, But he was 12 hours by boat from the nearest town when this happened. Um, And so it was about the... For for him, the, the first challenge was for his friends getting him out of there. Now, I was in... I was probably in a hospital bed within maybe three hours of my injury because mm-hmm. I was in London. I was picked up by the air ambulance, taken mm-hmm. by helicopter to hospital. His, his friends had to get him uh, from this remote location uh, to uh, to an airport in order to get the medivac because they were so far away that the helicopter couldn't fly in and pick them up because they would have run out of fuel. So. Oh, yeah. So, mm. so part of the book is really about that experience. Mm. Um, was about his rescue and mm-hmm. and the fact that he survived at all is mm. is really absolutely quite astonishing. Yeah. Uh, and then it's about his journey uh, mm. of rehabilitation uh, and sort of getting to a point of acceptance, I guess, to some mm. extent. Uh, he's got two surf shops down in Kaima, so he's the next town up from from where I live. Uh, and I actually met him. Uh, I think couple of weeks after he'd been discharged from hospital all right and the really mm. frustrating thing is the book actually uh finishes about a week before i came into his life which is not like me because i usually like talking about myself <laughs> but it was only after i'd finished writing it that i realized damn i didn't put myself in um so yeah but it was an interesting process uh going on that journey again but someone else's experience and and obviously we had that we had that thing in common that we've both mm. been through a, a spinal cord injury and a mm. rehabilitation process. Um, and so going back over that was quite an interesting journey um, mm. for me and comparing the, the two things, the differences, the things that were the, mm. the same about our experiences. Mm. But uh, yeah. Was that collaboration, sort of the recapitulation around his experience, was that helpful for Darren, do you think, in terms of? I think he's, he's, look, um, I, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of telling your own story because mm. I think telling your own story means taking ownership of your own story, and it can mm. be quite an empowering process. Mm. And as a writer, it's something that I've always been um, passionate about, mm. and it is something that I'm. I, I my intention is mm. to develop a sort of workshop to help people on right. that that journey not necessarily with a view towards publishing a book at the end of it mm. but actually um you know darren like a lot of people one of the challenges that he he sort of had along the way was that he was surrounded by people friends and family close to him who who didn't and they didn't know the full story and they mm. didn't feel like they could ask because okay. it was very close and it was very raw and 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 I think anyone who goes through again who acquires a disability, you know, one of the things that happens is when it happens to you, you go on this journey of understanding your own disability 
and it's very easy to to it sort of develop the misunderstanding that other people are on that journey with you but mm. unless you take them on that journey with you they mm. don't understand exactly what you're going through on a day-to-day -day basis mm. and then they get intimidated because they don't want to say the wrong thing and and so on uh, mm. and so um, I think for him and for his friends actually it was an interesting journey because a lot of them had no idea yeah. I mean they they saw the you know even friends who were with him on the boat they saw him have his accident. They got him back onto the boat. They got him into a, a, a little helicopter that was owned by a volunteer mm. doctor who then ran out of fuel and had to put down in the middle of the jungle um, <laughs> and leave him there while he went off and find, found some other transport. So mm. he spent sort of 12 hours or something gaffer mm. taped wow. half a surfboard lying flat on his back in the jungle while it was getting dark in the middle of nowhere. Gaffer taped to a half a surfboard. Half surfboard. That, was wow. the, that was the background. I, I think there's a movie in this. Yeah, well, there I'd is. love there to be a movie in this. Yeah, there. oh my gosh. It's um, an incredible story. So it was a, for a lot of people, it was filling in the blanks. And yeah. also in the process of doing that, he could also give them a better understanding as to what his everyday mm. looked like. Mm. And I think that is also that's an important mm. part of that process. And the thing is, when you tell your own stories, you can also decide where the story starts and where the story finishes. Mm. So if you want to go all the way back and talk about everything that led you up to a particular point in your life, you can do that, or you mm. can start at the moment of impact, if you like, mm. and move on from there. Mm. And I think that that process of, of telling that story can be useful for the person telling the story and also for the people close to them. Mm. So, yeah. Well, I, think, I think you're absolutely right, Tim. I think that would be a fantastic sort of a program to have you know to be mm. able to Absolutely. support people through that i can just imagine you know there, i think there's many things you know not just injuries but um you know so many important events that i think um we often don't process them yeah uh properly uh, or completely i think but and we also what also happens i think is over time we focus on certain things that may not have been of, of such import at the at that time, mm -hmm. um, whereas if we've got a some sort of documented um, story that we've put, you know, temporarily closer to the event, yeah. uh, we can actually fact check ourselves. Do you know? <laughs> because I think our, our, yeah, yeah. we have that funny way of changing those um, stories over time. We and, do, and yeah. I think as as listeners to other people's mm. stories, I think that's also an important process because mm. I think sometimes again it comes back to what we were talking about with the the way that someone with a disability becomes the living embodiment of whatever other people project onto them mm. one of the things I've always found really um, heartening and, and enjoyable is is being around uh, you know especially picking the kids up from school and so on mm. being around children and their insatiable curiosity mm. and the openness with which they will ask questions mm. and I, I i love it when kids ask oh why are you in a wheelchair you know mm. and so on because I, I think actually that there is a there is a genuine open curiosity there and then i think what tends to happen is as adults we sort of close some of that down because we feel like it might not be socially acceptable mm. but then the the curiosity is still there and then what happens is people just project something else in there in its place yes um and whereas i've always I've loved being, you know, picking the kids up from school and having kids coming and asking me questions. I think actually when Rosie was still in preschool, I think the same kids would come up and ask me the same questions every day. And I think <laughs> she got a bit fed up with it in the end. And then one day someone asked 
me and she turned around and said, oh, he fell out of a tree because a squirrel chewed through his rope. So she created this whole new version wow. of, of events. <laughs> the she squirrel. Was it was the up. squirrel. She was fed up with hearing yeah. the same the version same over and over again. Um, But I love that curiosity, and I think Mm. in some ways there needs to be some way of of drawing that into the way that adults communicate Mm. in in a sort of open and and non-judgmental way. And that's Mm. part of the process about you know when you when you share your story, you have the Mm. potential to fill in some of the blanks so that people don't then um, sort of get tied up with things that they don't mm. fully understand mm. if you know what i mean yeah. or, or project the wrong stuff yes. onto it yeah onto, well. yeah absolutely well that that might bring us to the end of today's podcast mm. but i mm. um definitely am coming away with two books i've got to read so <laughs> exactly. your book um and also the other book about um darren longbottom yeah um mm. that i would love some movie producer to get their hands on mm, just when right. you described the jungle in bali and a helicopter it's so that the description is even just that little bit so vivid mm. um and and also all of what goes along with telling that story um for the person and for people around them um would be really valuable so mm, yeah. um I think we, we, we talk about at the end, we try and sum things up, but um, you're the writer. So how how would you like to sum up today's um, podcast in terms of um, a message that you might like to get out to people about labelling the disabling? What what would your recommendation be? Uh, well, start with the person. Yep. Always start with the person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, curiosity is not in and itself a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first thing you do is any aspect of someone's life is uh, first ask yourself how would you feel if someone's asking you about that aspect yes. of your life. Absolutely. Um, and and probably more importantly, um, yeah, start with the person and then and and don't label them. You don't know anything about them, so don't presume that you do. Mm. And and that can be a challenge. But sometimes you do actually have to think about. And, and challenge yourself to say, well, do I know this or am I coming into this with yeah. a with a prejudiced yeah. uh, sort of preconceived idea? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I don't think in, in life generally, whoever you are, the human beings that you interact with, I think you should always be wary mm-hmm. and challenge yourself to say, well, actually, do I know that or am I presuming? Mm-hmm. So. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pleasure. Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much.